Have you ever experienced a season of waiting on God? Perhaps you're in one right now, or that could describe a significant portion of your life. Maybe you're here and you aren't yet following Christ, but have you ever experienced a difficult season in life where things just constantly remained troublesome and hard? Where you felt like everything that you faced was a challenge and you weren't sure how you could continue to go on and face it. Most of us, if not all of us, have faced or will face some kind of difficulty in life. This is because we live in a fallen and broken world. And what I mean by that is that we live in a world that is stained by what we call sin. Sin is that which rejects God's perfect rule and design for creation and rebels against him. And with it, it brings pain and suffering and sorrow and nothing good. And the Bible tells us that the ruler of this world is an evil being who is bent on wreaking havoc, havoc through sin in rebellion against God. And one of the primary ways in which he often operates is by enticing the sinful nature of all of humanity to do all kinds of evil against each other. The truth is, that is what is at work in every avenue of our lives here on this earth. The Bible reveals to us in 1 Peter 5.8 that our enemy prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. It also calls for us to resist him, to flee from him, and to instead draw near to God. But the problem is we can't draw near to God without redemption, without something changing between us and God. And this is what Jesus Christ secured for all who place their trust in him and the work he accomplished on the cross over 2,000 years ago. And as he secured our redemption, the beautiful thing is he changed our status. We are no longer in ourselves, but we are in Christ. We are held and we are kept secure, the Bible tells us, in Christ until the day of his return. But the problem is, between now and then, the world remains broken. Our enemy still prowls around like a lion. And even those of us who are in Christ will face difficulties in life, hardships, suffering. Some that may even be extended seasons where we are waiting on God to do something. And actually, in one sense, the truth is we are all really waiting on God. We are waiting for the day when God will come and all will be renewed and restored. The day when our tears will be wiped away. The day when sorrow and pain will end and we will only enjoy joy in the presence of God forever. And so the question for this morning is, how do we pray while waiting in trust on God? That's what we're hoping to learn from Psalm 62 this morning. Turn there with me in your Bibles. It's roughly right in the middle. This is a beautiful psalm, and it really has a lot to reveal to the heart that has placed its trust in Christ. For our time, we're going to divide it into three sections. 
by three stanzas that we see based on the repeated use of the word selah at the end of verse 4 and 8, should be in most of your translations, which many believe to be an intended pause for reflection, a musical term probably. But before we dive into the psalm itself, listen to this observation that David Guzik makes, because I think we should keep it in mind as we're reading. He says this, he says, Psalm 62 seems to come from a time of trouble, yet it asks God for nothing. It is full of faith and trust, but has no fear, no despair, and no petition. You see, it's this deep trust in the midst of trouble and difficult seasons that I believe our gracious Lord wants to instill in our hearts today. And based on our desire to learn how to pray in this series, we're going to look at this psalm, Psalm 62, to see what prayers while waiting look like. How should our prayers look while we're waiting on God? Start in verses 1 through 4, the first stanza, where we see that prayers while waiting proclaim confidence in God's salvation. Look at verses 1 and 2, where we see David proclaiming this confidence in God. He says, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From Him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. Twice in these verses, David uses a term that means only. We have it translated alone here. And this is actually a word in the Hebrew that begins the verse. And it's repeated throughout the psalm. We see it here in verses 1 and 2. We'll see it again in verses 4, 5, 6, and 9. Each time with this word at the beginning of the verse in the original language. And this points to the idea that this is one of the main characteristics of this psalm. There is only one that David needs. So he begins in verse 1 by saying his soul will wait in silence on God alone. Now it would appear that he doesn't mean there's no communication at all. Because we'll see in verse 8 that he encourages people to pour out their heart to God. The Hebrew word actually doesn't mean silence in regards to no talking. What this means here is that his soul is at peace. It's still It's calm before God as it's waiting on Him. And this is because, as we see in verse 2, he says, God is His rock and salvation. Now, throughout the Bible, salvation may point to deliverance from a present danger, But it always includes an eye towards a future deliverance eternally in Christ to what the Messiah would eventually do for its people. In other words, it speaks of the current situation before the person while ultimately looking towards what Christ accomplished on the cross and what he'll accomplish at his return. Hebrews 11 shows us that all the saints of old ultimately were waiting for the work of Christ and its culmination at his return. So David says that his soul waits 
instill calmness on God because he knows that God secures his salvation. And church, we know now exactly what God has done to secure that salvation through the blood of Jesus. And we know just how steady and sure that securance is. So our confidence as we pray should be deeply rooted in the salvation of God. David also says in the end of verse 2 that God is his fortress and he will not be greatly shaken. Now pay attention to the phrasing at the end of verse 2 because we're going to compare this refrain to the similar one in verse 5. David says he will not be greatly shaken. It would seem at this point in time that David understands there might be some shaking that comes in his life. But because God is his fortress, because God is his rock that he's clinging to, that shaking will never be too much. He might wobble, he might become weak, but he will never fall. Verses 3 through 4 in this psalm then reveal exactly what David is experiencing when he says this. Look at verse 3. He says, How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall or tottering fence? David is under some kind of threat from people that are attacking him. And he compares their attacks to someone trying to batter down a leaning wall or a tottering fence. Now, where I come from, we build large wooden fences to surround our properties. And what you do is you start by a four by four piece of wood that goes up about six or seven feet. I think that's like two meters, somewhere along that line. Forgive me, I don't speak. Um, I speak metrics. Um, So you put these posts in the ground, you put them about six feet apart, two meters apart, and then you secure two by four wooden beams across them and then one by four slats going up all the way around until you have this beautiful, large wooden fence um, that keeps the critters or what out, I don't know. Um, But over time, what happens to these fences is they become unsturdy and they need to be replaced. And so you have to take them down and you have to rebuild them again. It's not a very efficient way of doing things, but this was the most fun part as a kid. Because as a kid, you're given a sledgehammer and you're allowed to just go and swing at the wall as hard as you can, as many times as you can, until it eventually falls down. And that's the picture that David is painting here. His enemies are constantly attacking him, batting him in order to get him to eventually fall. He shows this as he then describes their character and their plans in verse 4. He says, they only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. These attackers are deceptive, they're hypocritical, and they are actively seeking to bring him down. And this is the difficulty that David is facing where he proclaims such a confidence in God's salvation. Now, in one sense, we may rarely face a situation exactly like this, one where people are actively trying to do us harm. But as I mentioned earlier, in another sense, this is the exact situation we're facing all of our lives from our main enemy. Yet, even if 
The difficulty in front of us isn't exactly the same as David's. We can learn to pray with him in any kind of trouble or trial by proclaiming confidence in God's salvation. And we do this by doing things like thanking God often for the salvation that we have through Jesus Christ. By blessing him for the mercy that he gives to us each and every day. We can do this in our prayers as we even at times thank him that we know that this world is not our home. That there's something better waiting for us. So as you think about your prayer life, how often do your prayers include a proclamation of confidence in God's salvation? How often do they speak of God's salvation at all? Let me encourage you to let this psalm challenge you to pray more in this way, to focus your heart on the salvation of God. The next stanza in verses 5 through 8 shows us that prayers while waiting call for trust in God's care. Start with me in verses 5 through 6, and notice how similar this is to verses 1 through 2, but look out for the subtle differences that David says. Verse 5, he says, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. Did you catch the differences there? It's almost so similar that you don't see them right away. Where in verse 1, David says, my soul waits in silence. In verse 5, he is now speaking to his soul, saying, oh, my soul, wait in silence. In verse 1, we see that salvation comes from God. But in verse 5, hope is from him. And lastly, in verse 2, David says, he shall not be greatly shaken. But here in verse 6, he seems to have even more confidence now that he shall not be shaken at all. He has completely yielded his fears, his anxieties to God, and he's calling on his soul to continue to trust in him because God is worthy of trust. I think the addition of verse 7 reveals why, where David says, on God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. His salvation, his glory, or his honor and exaltation are ultimately dependent on God. That's who he's trusting in for those things. God is the rock that David clings to, and he's the refuge that he runs to. And when David describes God as a mighty rock, a fortress, and a refuge, there's a possibility that he's thinking of the cities of refuge that were established in Numbers 35 and Joshua 20. And what these were were places of asylum for people who unintentionally killed others. And they were places that they would receive protection from their accusers who were seeking to bring them to death until they could have a proper trial. So God is David's city of refuge from his accusers. His care for David would be his protection against the enemy's accusations. But notice the next shift in this psalm. 
you'll see that David talks to himself, he talks to God, and now he turns his heart from talking to himself to encouraging others. In verse 8, he says, Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. God is not only a refuge for David, the chosen king, but he is a refuge for anyone who pours out their heart to him. He is a refuge for you as you pour out your heart to him. And the idea is that our troubles, our pain, our desires, our concerns, our feelings stream out of us, flowing like water out of us to God. And notice, church, that this is an aspect of trusting in God at all times. It is when we truly trust in God that we pour out our hearts to him. And I think there's a chance in which this can be the opposite of how we think sometimes. You see, there's a temptation to think that pouring out your heart to God, sharing your feelings, your desires, your concerns, your burdens, is a lack of trust in some shape or form. That what it looks like to really trust God is to say, I don't need to take anything to him. I just trust him to take care of it. But notice that in David's mind, this is not a lack of trust, but it's rather evidence of that trust. And we can see how this is true when we watch a child growing up, can we not? It's the child that trusts his parents or his friends that's willing to really share what's going on in their lives. You see, it's the comfort they have with that person that allows them to open up because they know they can trust that person with their heart. This is the level of trust that I long to build with my daughters as they're growing up, that they know they can come to me and they'll have a listening ear who's ready to walk with them through anything that they're going through. And David says, because he has found God to be a refuge for him in this way, he calls on others, on us as we're reading this, to pour out our hearts to God and to trust in God's care. And our prayers should be filled for calls at times to trust in God's care. We should speak to our hearts like David does, reminding ourselves of trust. It can take the form of actually saying, I, I say this all the time, and it probably sounds weird if people hear me out loud, like, Ben, come on, you can trust in God, look at what he's done. It can take that form, or it can take the form of simply going to God and just saying, God, show me that you love and you care for me. Remind me of your presence. Remind me that you're here. Give me peace and comfort in the midst of this. Because as commentator Albert Barnes reminds us, there is not a desire which God cannot gratify, not a trouble in which he cannot relieve us, not a danger in which he cannot defend us. And in like manner, there is not a spiritual want in which he will not feel a deep interest nor a danger to our souls from which he will not be ready to deliver us. God is a refuge for us. So while you are waiting on God and you're praying in that season, do you call for your heart to trust in God's care? And if you're walking alongside others or you're praying corporately or for them, do your prayers focus on calling for them to trust in God's care? As well. 
This brings us to the final stanza, verses 9 through 12. Where we are shown that prayers while waiting remember the assurance of God's power and covenant-keeping love. Look at verses 9 and 10. And notice how these flow out of verse 8. David writes, Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on bribery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. In verse 8, David called on all people to trust in God. And in these verses, he's remembering for himself and he's reminding them that there is nothing else that can be trusted in this life. Verse 9 shows that all people, whether they are lowly or whether they are exalted, whether they are of lofty situations or humble situations, all of them are ultimately the same. They are a breath. The word he uses is actually the same word used throughout Ecclesiastes as vanity. Lowly or common men are frail and fleeting. And men of great esteem are really the same. There's just a fog of lies that makes them think otherwise. He speaks of both being weighed to see their value and they're proven to be lighter than a breath. They're not even a breath, they're lighter than a breath. Not worthy to be trusted. And I think this is necessary for us to remember at times because we are far too often tempted to place our trust in mankind in some way. And we really cling to it in a lot of avenues of life. Maybe it's a political leader that we think is going to finally make things right in our home countries or another country of power. Maybe it's a preacher or a pastor or a prophet that we place our trust in. Maybe it's a healer. Maybe it's a spouse or a parent or even a friend. The point of verse 9 is that all of humanity, church, is frail, weak, and fleeting. And it's never where our trust should lie. Because it will always fail us. Then David expounds in verse 10 to show us there is no thing at all that we should ever trust in. He says, don't trust in power to extort your way. Things from people don't trust in robbery or deception. And don't even trust in faithfully earned or generously received riches. Nothing of it should, is worthy to be trusted. And all of this is meant to lead us to verses 11 and 12, which provide us the reasons we should place all of our trust in God alone. Focus in on these with me. Verse 11. Once God has spoken. Twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. At the beginning of verse 11, David appears to be employing a common technique in the language to draw attention and emphasize what he's about to say. It's not as though he's saying, I've only heard this twice, or he's heard only two things. It might be how your translation puts it is that he's saying, listen up. 
These things are valuable to remember. And perhaps it's because they show how can we be confident that God is both our rock and our salvation. So look at the first reason he gives. It's that power belongs to God. We look around us all the time and we see seemingly powerful things, don't we? Rulers, governments, armies, weapons, machinery. If you've ever seen Eric Bylot, Eric. <laughs> we may even be spiritually aware of the schemes of our enemy and his power to deceive and to cause harm. But let this verse sink in, church, that all power belongs to God alone. And the truth is that he oversees all power and he wills it according to his mercy and his justice. He alone holds all power and authority. This means that the devil can never thwart anything our God chooses to do. He is never too strong. There is never a stronghold that just needs to be overcome. God is the one with all power. The devil's power is limited, church. It's limited. And it's limited by God. This also means that his power one day is going to be in a glorious display for everyone to see. When, as we sang earlier, he comes in the clouds and he writes all wrong and he restores creation to its intended order and its glory. God is the one to whom all power belongs. Yet there's more and we are so thankful that there is more. Look again at verse 12. He says, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. It's not just that power belongs to God. It's that steadfast love belongs to him as well. This is the Hebrew term hesed. And if you've never memorized any Hebrew term and you don't have to, I would encourage you to memorize this one. Because it is a beautiful term. It refers to God's covenant-keeping love. Love that will never be broken. It encompasses his mercy and his loving kindness. In church, this kind of love belongs to him alone. No one else will love you like God loves you. So the conclusion of David, as he remembers God's power and his covenantal love, is to remind himself that God's justice will be executed at some point. Verse 12 again. For you will render to a man according to his work. One day, mercy will come to those that trust in him and judgment towards those that deny him. That is the end of all of life. And our prayers as we pray while we wait on God should include remembering the assurance of God's power and covenant-keeping love. These kinds of prayers can take the shape of sharing with God how you've seen his power in your own life. God, I remember what you did years ago. You can talk to him about how you've seen his power in history. God, you've taken down civilizations by your might. You can study scripture and see his power there 
on display. And you can pray through that. Prayers like this can take the form of praying about times that you have experienced God's love, reminding yourself of it. Or maybe you recite and you pray through scriptures like Romans 8, 35 through 39, which reminds us that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. So as you're praying while you wait, how often do your prayers reflect on the power and the covenant-keeping love of God? If they don't already, I would encourage you to do so. As you've seen, there's so much to learn from this psalm, and we've really just scratched the surface. As I've continued to reflect on how David wrote while he was waiting in trust on God, something stood out to me as I considered the whole of the psalm. While salvation or deliverance from the evils David faced is certainly mentioned frequently, just as equally, if not more frequently, are the ideas of security, protection, refuge, and trust in the midst of the difficulties. And I think what this is revealing to us as we consider how to pray while we wait on God is to balance our prayers as we make requests for deliverance or for answers or for healing or for solutions to problems and pray also for peace, for comfort, and for trust in God's goodness in and through every trial that we face. Let me ask you this. How often do you pray for God to keep you in a trial you face until the good he has for you from it has accomplished its purpose? Let me say that again because I really want you to consider thinking through this. How often do you pray for God to keep you in a trial that you face until the good that he has for you from that trial has accomplished its purpose? One of my life verses, or passages rather, is found in James 1, 2 through 4, and 12. And chances are you've heard me talk about this before if you've spoken with me for any length of time. And I run to these verses often because they remind me of at least one way that I know God is always working in and through every difficulty that I face. James 1, 2 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. Count it all joy. Consider it your greatest joy when you're facing a trial. And why and how do we do that? Verse 3, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So the reason we count it all joy is because we know that it's testing our faith, and that testing is producing steadfastness for us. Now notice the end in verse 4. And let steadfastness, get this, have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And I really think this is one way to work out what David means by waiting in silence on God. James says, let steadfastness have its full effect. In other words, 
Don't run too quickly from that trial or that testing of your faith. Remain under it. Remain inside of it until it has, imp- it, until it has produced the intended result that was meant by it. Complete steadfastness. And as we think of this psalm, we see that we can do this if we are clinging to the truths we've seen. Because church, God is our rock. He is our fortress. He is our refuge in every single trial. And we will not be shaken if we are in him. So as we wait and trust on God, we can let trials linger until they have accomplished the intended reason God had for them, until they have built in us steadfastness, because we know ultimately that God will help us and he will guard us until we make it home to glory. And this is our hope. That is the reason we wait and trust on God. Because even if he chooses in his goodness To keep that trial, that sickness, that weakness, or even that persecution until the end of your life, salvation is still coming. And joy awaits us. Rewards that we can't even begin to imagine. If you're in James, move down to verse 12, because I want to show you this from God's word so you can cling to it. Verse 12 says, blessed, which means happy. (laughs) Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For, or because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. You will be happy as you remain steadfast under the trials that you face because they are doing something profoundly good for you. Our church, don't trade the abundant riches of heaven for the fleeting and the puny treasures that this earth tries to tempt you with. Pray for God to keep you in trials. Set your eyes towards glory. And pray for eyes to see it more clearly. God, help me to see the future that awaits me more clearly so that I can trust in you. Let me end with this quote from Charles Spurgeon that beautifully captures the concept of this psalm. He writes, He who trusts in craft, man or things, sails this way today and that way the next, like a vessel tossed about by the fickle wind, But he that trusteth in the Lord is like a vessel propelled by a steam. She cuts through the ways, defies the wind, and makes one bright, silvery, straightforward track to her destined haven. Church, let's be vessels propelled by steam. And let's pray while we wait and trust on God. Please stand with me and let me pray this over us. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy. We thank you for your salvation. 
that is promised, that is both secured, is here and now, and awaits us one day in glory. God, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your steadfast love. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you that all power belongs to you. We thank you that we can pour out our hearts to you. And so we ask for you to help us. Help us as we wait on you. Help us to remain under trials. To let them do what you intended intended them to do. Give us the grace we need, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.